these relatively simple last two chapters of 1 Samuel. We'll do chapter 30 tonight. We'll do chapter 31 a week from Sunday. Probably could have done it all uh, tonight. In fact, I was thinking about this today. We probably could be moving a lot faster if it weren't for all the little rabbit trails <laughs> that the Lord tends to lead me on. This is, uh, this is one of those studies. There are a couple of really big ideas here that I think are important in our uh, understanding of, of spiritual life and growth and sin and forgiveness and the whole, the whole thing. And I'll point those out to you. But there are also a few things that, that I just saw as I was studying through, and I'll, I'll take you there too. Things to be thinking about. Um, and talk about Israel a little bit more tonight and a lot more on Sunday morning. It's really been on my heart lately. What's going on over there and what's being dealt with uh, on an international level. And so we'll talk more about that. People from time to time will ask me, Rick, why are you so interested in Israel? Are you a Jewish wannabe? And I I say unequivocally, no. I don't want to go back to law. I'm very happy with grace. I'd like to stay with grace. Grace is the place to be. But uh, there are a people who are called by God to be God's people, the people through whom Messiah came, a people given promises that are yet to be fulfilled. And so, as we study through the Hebrew Scriptures, we have to pause and consider the people of Israel. And they, they become for us so often an example of God and His faithfulness. Just simply looking at Israel and the relationship God has with the Jewish person and the Jewish people speaks to you and to me of His faithfulness. So there's so much here, and we're going to look at a few things tonight, but uh, let me begin by praying one more time and asking the Lord just to bless our study. Lord Jesus, here we are just a, less than a week away from Christmas, which means for a lot of us, busyness. And uh, as I pray Sunday, I pray again that you will release us from that and, and bring here in the next few days for each of us a time of rest and family and, and joy. Father and peace, a time of reflection. Lord, while we recognize on the calendar the birth of Jesus was much more likely at a different time, we also know that we stop and pause and and much of the world stops to um, at least acknowledge your birth into this world. And I think that's a good thing, Lord. And I pray that we will not stop in thinking about your birth, but we will consider your life. We'll consider your death, your fantastic resurrection, and we will consider what you call us to, your life now, Father. Jesus, tonight as we study through uh, 1 Samuel 30, I ask that you'll be with us and that you'll speak. And that what you have to tell us and what you give us, what you illuminate before us, Father, that we won't miss it, that we will see and hear and understand. I pray that you'll speak individually into each of our hearts as you speak corporately just as a body of believers. And I pray that tonight we'll be blessed. And Lord, protect our pilots as they fly above us, and I pray that you will just move them a little further south. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we pick up where we left off in our last study last week. If you weren't with us, I'll I'll kind of bring you up to speed. In our last study, we're looking at uh, chapter 29. Where actually 27, 28, and 29, where David has allied himself with the Philistines, the enemy to Israel. 
he is living in a place called Ziklag that he has been given by the uh, king of, of one of the cities of the Philistines. And so David is kind of living both ways. He's one foot in, one foot out. He's living in Philistine territory. He's playing politics, making the Philistines think that he's on their side, while at the same time he's going over into Judea and he's fighting the enemies of Israel. So he's playing one off the other, and he's into a sticky situation, especially when you get to chapter 29 and discover that now the Philistines are marshalling their army to go and fight Israel. And David is with them. David and his 600 men, they're in the back, but they're marching too, and they are expected by some, by the king, they're expected to fight. And it's a sticky situation. How is David now supposed to, supposed to keep his cover, if it is a cover, with the Philistines and fight Israel, his own people? He's in this sticky situation. And we talked about this quite a bit last week, that David, David is flawed, but God is faithful. And if there's anything that's a picture of you and of me, it's, it's that right there. David is flawed, God is faithful. I am flawed. But God is faithful. And I love that about our Father. And I love it about David because when we see David as a man after God's own heart, we understand that he's just a man with flaws, but it's the faithfulness of God working in David's life. Which means that as a flawed person myself, I too can be a man after God's own heart. Ladies, you can be women after God's own heart. Though you may have flaws. Now granted, most of you women don't have as many flaws as most of us guys do. But you still have flaws nonetheless. And here we have David, and he loves the Lord, but he's a liar. He seeks the Savior, but he's a sinner. And just like us, David is a flawed child of a faithful God. So he's flawed, he's with the Philistines, he's lying as he has a tendency to do, and he has already done several times, and he will do several more times as we study through his life. But as he's doing all of this, God gives him a way out, which is wonderful. David gets himself into a messy, sticky situation and God provides the exit. How many times has he done that for you? How many times has he done that for me? I get myself into a mess and I think there's no way out, but God provides the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 tells us, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, don't think that what you're tempted to do is different than anybody else. We have all been tempted in like ways. But Paul says God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now, however, and you may want to jot this down. I'm going to give you four things, four or five things to jot down tonight. However, though God provides deliverance and God provides exit for us, number one, forgiveness does not prevent fallout. Forgiveness does not prevent fallout. The other way of putting that is compassion doesn't abolish consequences. Though the Lord is merciful and gracious and kind and forgiving, it doesn't mean that if we sin and He forgives us, that we're off scot-free. Now, He may have forgiven us completely, but oftentimes, most of the time, there is fallout from our sin. We might say, well, can't the Lord forgive and just forget? Absolutely, He does. The Bible tells us. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. And if you've ever tried to find the meeting place of east and west, it doesn't exist. You just keep going around. That's how far away God has removed your sin. Jeremiah 31, verse 34 says, They will not teach again. 
each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. God forgets our sin. And He has promised to forget our sin. And that's what forgiveness is with God. Unlike us, we forgive people, but we remember. I forgive you, but I'm going to hold it over you. (laughs) I'll let you off the hook, but I'm not going to forgive. God forgets it. Forgiveness with the Lord, forgiven, it's gone. We're the ones who can't forget. Especially, it seems like, in our own lives, when we mess up, when we sin, and we continue to you know, beat ourselves about the head with guilt, when the Lord doesn't even know what we're talking about because He has forgotten. Forgiving and forgetting is not the problem with God. In fact, there is no problem with God. The problem is with us. The consequence of our sin usually has to run its course. The bomb has been dropped and there is always fallout. The initial blast of our sin, yeah, that's problematic and it's horrible. And when it comes to light, we have to deal with that. But the reality is sometimes days, months, even years afterwards, there's fallout from the choices that we made. And yes, the Lord has forgiven us, but we're still dealing with the fallout. And sometimes in our lives we say, why? Come on, Lord, haven't you forgiven me yet that I still have to deal with this sin that I, that I committed ten years ago? And the Lord would say, what sin was that? Because He forgets the sin. He has forgiven the sin, but oftentimes the fallout will remain. This is such an important thing for us to understand. This is why the Father, by the way, implores us not to sin in the first place. Because he knows the consequence can be ongoing. What does this have to do with David? Well, David and his men now have been released from the battle. They don't have to fight the Philistines. God has provided a way out. But as they head back to their operational base at Ziklag, they come face to face with a shocking consequence. The fallout of their decision to live in enemy territory. And here it is. Verse 1 of chapter 30. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. They took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Now pause for a moment. You parents, think about how that would feel. Let's say you're just out Christmas shopping, and you come home, and there was a babysitter, but the door is standing wide open, and the babysitter's gone, and the children are gone, and you realize they've they've all been kidnapped. How would that feel to you? See, human emotion back in Bible times is no different than human emotion today. It was devastating. Not only were their children, their wives, their their flocks, everything they had gone, but Ziklag is burning. The Amalekites have burned it now to the ground. Verse 4 says, David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. That's pretty descriptive. They were absolutely blown away, completely wiped out by what had happened. By the way, interesting, Ziklag, by definition, the Hebrew word Ziklag, it means winding road. Winding road. And isn't life just like that? When you think you've been left off, let off the hook, wow, I'm out of that sticky situation. God has guided me away from that sin. Whew, I'm over it. I'm done. I'm forgiven. It's great. And I come around the corner of this winding road and I can't possibly see what's coming. And it's the consequence of my sin. See, when I repent, I receive forgiveness. 
But so often, the consequences are still there. And I have watched this happen, and I've watched it happen even as recently as, as this last week. People blaming God for the consequence of their sin. People who have sinned and made sin choices that now have fallout in their lives and they're angry with God for not forgiving them when the truth is God has forgiven. But the fallout is still there. The consequence remains. We make our choices. And in life, because we're forgiven, it doesn't mean that there's not fallout. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And it's a spiritual principle. It's a law that is as certain as the Ten Commandments. It's a law that is as certain as the laws of nature. That if we sow to corruption, Paul says, if we sow to our own flesh, we will from the flesh reap corruption. That's the way it goes. If, however, we sow to the Spirit, we will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Think of it this way, and I've shared this before. If I take apple seeds and I go plant apple seeds into the ground, I'm going to get an apple tree. If I take a T-bone steak and plant it in the ground, what am I going to get? Maggots. Corruption. I'm not going to get a steak tree. If we did, we'd all have steak trees and the cows would roam free and happy. But we don't. Ever plant a steak in the ground? I mean, think about this. And that's the perfect illustration. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. If we try to plant a steak... If we try to function in our flesh, and based on our fleshly desires, corruption will be the result. But if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap spiritually. Which brings me to the second point. The first one, again, being that forgiveness does not prevent fallout. But the second one is don't blame the Father, blame the fallout. Don't blame God when you're dealing with the consequence of your own sin. God, why do you just allow this to keep happening? Why is my life a mess? I can't believe you would do this. And the Lord's saying, I didn't do this. You did this. And I have forgiven you for it, but you are dealing with it, and you're going to have to deal with it. And you Bible students will recall this. Historically speaking, the first story recorded in the Bible is not Genesis chapter 1. The first thing written down was actually in Exodus chapter 17. We know this because in Exodus 17, it tells us this. It's the story of Moses. And he's up on the mountain. And he's praying with his brother Aaron and, and the other guy, Her. He's got a his and her situation going on there. Up on the top of this mountain, and he's praying because the Israelites are fighting in the valley below. They're fighting, they're led by Joshua, and they're fighting a very certain people, the Amalekites. The same people who just destroyed Ziklag. The Amalekites all the way back in Exodus 17. And here's what the Bible tells us. Exodus 17, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it The Lord is My Banner. And he said, quote, The Lord has sworn... The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Now I want you to catch that. God says He is going to wipe out Amalek. But there's going to be war between Israel and Amalek from generation to generation. Israel in the Bible is a picture of spiritual things. Not always perfectly a spiritual people. In fact, Israel today is a very secular nation and there's nothing really spiritual right now. And there's something, there's not a whole lot spiritual about it. But Israel still remains a picture for us, a type in the Bible of spiritual things. The Amalekites, Amalek is always a picture of the flesh. 
all the way back to Exodus 17 coming all the way up and the Bible says the Lord has sworn he will have war against Amalek from generation to generation and what that tells me is if Amalek is a picture of the flesh then we have a picture here of my sin nature fighting against me and is a a cross generational thing that we continue to have to battle sin we continue to have to fight the flesh Romans chapter 8 verse 5 says those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who are according to the spirit the things of the spirit the mindset on the flesh is death the mindset on the spirit is life and peace now I don't know how the Bible could be any clearer if we're set on physical things and we could make a list money houses Jobs, vehicles, getting stuff, physical pleasures. If our minds are set on those things, we are promised the mindset on the flesh is death. It will not produce what we think or hope or wish that it could if we're set on the flesh. If our minds are set on the spirit, there's life and peace. What is that? It's prayer, it's Bible study, it's worship. The things that are pleasing to God. The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. All these things. If our minds are set here, it's life and peace. Paul says, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now think about this for a moment, brothers and sisters in Christ. You may live in the Spirit, and you may have a hunger and a desire to live as a Christian person. You want to please the Father, but we all have moments in the flesh, don't we? And we all have those moments when we want to please or satisfy our fleshly desire. I want you to hear this. The flesh cannot please God. So even if I'm living my entire life to please the Lord, And for the Savior, when I get into those flesh moments where I'm all about pleasing myself, it is not pleasing to God. Paul says, however, you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. By the way, with the Amalekites, Didn't the Lord command Saul to wipe out the Amalekites? Back in 1 Samuel 15, and Saul didn't do it. Had Saul wiped them out, the Amalekites wouldn't have been here to wipe out Ziklag. And as we'll see, a week from Sunday in chapter 31, an Amalekite would not have been there to drive a spear into Saul's heart and kill him. But Saul didn't want to do it God's way. Saul wanted to do it his way. Saul didn't listen to the Lord. And now the Amalekites are still picking fights. Still causing problems. And the truth is, if we don't put sin to death, it will continue to to have fallout, to bring about fallout in our life. If we don't put it to death. I'm not going to tell you which sin. I don't know which sin or sins are your personal struggle. But there are too many times when we sit there and say... Yeah, I know this is kind of a problem for me, but I can handle it. And the Lord would say, put it to death. Put it to death. Don't even go there. Don't even visit that place. Don't even enjoy that pleasure. Don't touch it. Stay away from it. Because if we don't put it to death, its fallout will continue. But there's more than that. It will also continue to produce fallout from one generation 
to the next. My sin in my life. I wish I had understood this back before I had children. Because just now I'm starting to get it. And my attitudes and actions and behaviors and thoughts and feelings and the way I am as a person has already had an impact and an effect on the next generation, on my children. I'm already seeing in them myself. Sorry, Corey. But they're going to have to deal with some of that fallout. Possibly the best and most amazing picture of this that we have in history and in the Bible is the fallout between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Turning your Bibles over to Ezekiel chapter 35. Ezekiel 35. Let's read this to you. And this... This is one of those sections of Scripture that is so absolutely clear as to God's feelings about this situation. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it is a cross-generational impact, fallout of sin. There are people today whose lives are miserable because of sin that happened 3,500 years ago. That has traveled across generations. Ezekiel chapter 35 verse 1. I'm just going to read through the whole chapter, so listen up to this. So you're going to get multiple chapters tonight. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Mount Seir is specifically the mountains surrounding Israel. It's that area right there. He says, Prophesy against it and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay waste your cities and you will become a desolation. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have had everlasting enmity or hatred and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of the punishment of the end. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will give you over to bloodshed. The bloodshed will pursue you. Since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation. I will cut it off from the one who passes through and returns. I will fill its mountains with its slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in your ravines, those slain by the sword will fall. I will make you an everlasting desolation, and your cities will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because if you, you have said, listen to this, interesting, because you have said these two nations and these two lands will be mine and we will possess them although the Lord was there therefore as I live declares the Lord God I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy which you showed because of your hatred against them what two nations? what two nations might he be talking about in the prophecy? I think we may be looking at at an early prophecy of the nation of Israel and the nation of Palestine if it comes to be and the reality is, and I, I just, I've been doing some reading on this. It's really hard it, 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 to think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and to stand to be as supportive of, it, as, of Israel as I am and then to look at the misery going on in the Palestinian refugee camps. And the misery is, is real. It's legitimate. There are people whose lives are dreadful. Palestinians. Now, the world would, would make a big blanket judgment and say, it's Israel's fault. It's not. The world would, on the other side, there are those who would make a, a big blanket judgment and say, it's the Arabs' fault, and it's not completely. 
There's fault on both sides, but when you look at the situation, what you see is people who are being used in the midst of an ancient hatred that has gone on, as I said, 3,500 years. These two nations and these two lands, because you have said that. Who is it that's saying these two nations and these two lands will be mine? I'll tell you who's saying it. The rulers and the authorities in the Arab nations that surround. Who could care less about even their own, the Palestinian people. Well, how can you say that, Rick? How can the Arabic people care not care about their own people? I'll tell you how. They didn't allow them to come on in and live in their lands. When Israel became a nation in 1948 and the War of Independence broke out, at that time, Israel, following that war, once it became a nation, began to receive Jews from everywhere. Though they didn't have resources to meet all the needs. And the Jews came pouring in. And the refugees that were left over from that war, and there are refugees from every war, but those that were left over of the, of the Arab peoples, the Palestinian peoples of today is what they're called. They weren't called that back then. But the Arabs who were left refugees were not invited into Jordan, were not invited into Syria, were not invited into Saudi Arabia or Egypt or any of the countries around it. They said, no, we don't want them. It's not as if they didn't have enough land. It's not as if there wasn't enough space. But there's been an everlasting enmity, a long-term hatred. And the Palestinian refugee camps were set up and have been left there for 60 years as a tool as pawns in the hands of those who would say these two nations and these two lands will be mine there are people who want that whole area and so the Lord says therefore as I live declares the Lord God I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy which you have shown because of your hatred against them I will make myself known among them when I judge you he says then you will know that I the Lord have spoken all your revilings which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel saying they are laid desolate they are given to us for food and you have spoken arrogantly against me and have multiplied your words against me and I have heard it. Thus says the Lord God, as the earth rejoices, I will make you a desolation. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will do to you. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it, and they will know that I am the Lord. Edom and Mount Seir described very specifically Edom drawing all the way back to Esau who is one of the fathers of the Arab people Mount Seir the mountain surrounding Israel and Edom the Lord is talking about the Arab people who have set themselves against Israel and please let me be clear there are Arab peoples who have set themselves in love with Jesus there are Christian Arabs just like there are Christian Americans and Christians everywhere there are people who are in the, the family of Jesus who are Arabs. It's not just all Arabs, but those who have set themselves against Israel are being severely judged and this prophecy will take place. For anyone who would wonder about the position of the Lord regarding the Middle East conflict today, read again Ezekiel 35 and it's very clear where God stands. My point is this, don't blame the father, blame the fallout. The problem of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not God's fault. It is the fallout of hatred, the fallout of sin that has lasted generation upon generation. The problem is never with God's faithfulness, the problem is with our flesh. Now, back to our story. They come back in, Ziklag is laid waste, the winding road 
is messed up. All their wives, children, belongings, everything taken captive and gone. Now watch what happens. Verse 5. Now David's two wives have been taken captive. Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David, and I just love this verse, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That is a great verse. David's house is burned. His wives are taken. And now his most loyal men are ready to stone him to death. And what does he do? Fight back? Argue? Fall down on the ground? Run away? The Bible tells us David strengthens himself in the Lord his God. Number three in your notes, when the fallout comes, fall into the Father's arms. And this is such a key. It's such a key. The fallout from our sin will happen. We do have to deal with consequence. It's the way it is. Because if we have sown to the flesh, we will reap corruption. But when that happens, and when we find ourselves in the midst of the fallout, and in the midst of painful situations because of our choices, fall into the Father's arms. David strengthens himself in the Lord. He's not shaking his fist at the sky. He's praising. Sorrow breeds sorrow. And bitterness engenders bitterness. And anger just fires up more anger. It's how it works. How about instead of sorrow, singing? Or instead of bitterness, blessing? Instead of anger, adoration? Worship, prayer, meditation in the Lord, these things will lessen the effects and the impact of the fallout of our sin. And that's what David did here. He strengthens himself in the Lord. And you might say, okay, Rick, that's the approach of a simpleton. Having a hard time in life, go to worship. I mean, whatever. Of course, you're a pastor. That's what they pay you to say. Well, not really. It's what the Lord tells us. You might say, but I've got nothing to praise the Lord for right now. Really? I'm going to give you one thing that regardless of any consequence in your life, regardless of what's happening, no matter how low, no matter how far to the bottom of the barrel you may have sunk, there is always one thing in Christ to be thankful for, one thing that you can praise Him for. Isaiah 61.10 I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. You see, no matter what happens in my life, I'm saved. I am going to heaven. I am going to be with Jesus for all eternity. No matter how bad things might get here, I could lose everything as David has in this moment. It's all gone. And even his most loyal friends are ready to stone him. But he's rejoicing. He is strengthening himself in the Lord. He has a sense of his salvation. And so can we. Regardless of where we might be. Turn over to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. It's called a Mictom of David. And he writes the following. He says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good beside you. We just sang the song. The song, Rescue. This world has nothing for me. Now there are some things in this world that are good. And there are some things in this world that bring me great joy. But ultimately, in comparison to Jesus Christ, this world has nothing. Nothing on Him. David says, I take refuge in you. You are the Lord. You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, that is those who are dead, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. 
The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names on my lips. The Lord is, my, is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. They can take my wives, they can take my house, they can burn my city, they can threaten to stone me, but I will not be shaken because I've got the Lord. And I can strengthen myself in the Lord regardless of any situation, David says. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. We read this on Sunday. It's a prophetic verse of Jesus. But David applies it. He's talking about himself here as well. He says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. David strengthens himself in the Lord. The man after God's own heart. Where others might sink into depression or hide away in fear. Other great men even of Scripture. Remember Elijah? Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal. 400 men on Mount Carmel. Wipes them out. Studly Elijah. Powerful Elijah. Calling down fire from the sky Elijah. And then he runs and hides in a cave from a woman. No offense, gals. But he gets into this little cave and he's hiding out and he's saying, Oh, I'm alone. I'm afraid. I'm the last one left. They're all, and, and she's going to get me. And God goes, What are you doing? Come on, Elijah. What are you doing? He's shrinking in desperation and fear and depression. And I think if David was there, he'd say, Elijah, strengthen yourself in the Lord. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. The amazing thing about David's life is it is a series of ups and downs, of ziklags, winding roads. It's a constant thing with David. Just when you think everything is settled down and solid and good, it all goes haywire again. And it will to the very end of his life. He has very little peace in his life. Again and again, over and over, just when he finally comes to the throne and he, and he you know, fights all the enemies of Israel and drives them back, and you're thinking, good, now, now we can relax and just kind of sit back with David while he writes more psalms. And then his son tries to steal the throne from him and he's on the run again as an old man hiding in caves. But when David's in the cave, he's not going, oh, woe is me, the world's over, I'm in big trouble. And he's saying, Lord, you're at my right hand. Strengthen me. I'm with you. You are with me. You are my strength. Now watch David do this. He strengthens himself in the Lord. Verse 7, back in 1 Samuel 30. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech. Remember Ahimelech? He was the priest at Nob who was killed because he helped David out, not knowing that David was lying to him. Well, Abiathar, his son, has stuck with David. There's a godly man for you. He stuck with David, and so he says to Abiathar the, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, and you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. Don't know about you, but I don't think I would pause and inquire from the Lord if my wife had been kidnapped. 
I would probably be in the car flying down the driveway 100 miles an hour looking for her before I even gave thought to inquiring of the Lord. And yet here's David and he's strengthening himself in the Lord and he's going to the Lord before he does anything. Before he reacts, before he goes into rescue mode, he inquires of the Lord. Now, he asked for the ephod to be brought to him. Do you understand the ephod? Let me... Most of you may, some of you may. Let me explain quickly the ephod. We read about this when we studied Exodus. Back in Exodus 28, the ephod is that, well, best, kind of like this one, that the high priest wore. And in the ephod, there was a breast piece that was placed on it and had 12 stones that were representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, precious stones that were on the ephod. And Exodus 28, verse 30 says, You shall put in the breast piece of judgment, the ephod, you shall put in it the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. The Urim and the Thummim. And no one knows really what they are. And the scholars have, have guessed all kinds of things, from, from maybe a couple of things that they could throw lots and, and see, or throw like dice and see what the answer is, or something like that. There are those who believe, though, though that the Urim and the Thummim was actually the action of the breast piece that went on the ephod. Because it had those stones in it. And Urim and Thummim means lights and perfections. And so people think, possibly, that when the high priest went before the Lord and prayed and asked the Lord for divine counsel or judgment, that in some way or another those stones actually lit up and gave God's answer one way or the other. We don't know exactly how it worked. But we do know that the Urim and the Thummim served to express the will of God to the high priest regarding certain matters or unanswered questions. We see the the ephod placed on Aaron at his preparation for ordination in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 8. It says, Then he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the Urim and the Thummim, the lights and perfections. They gave God's answer. They pointed, somehow they helped communicate the will of God, but they point us to something else. Someone else, rather, who communicates the will of God to us today. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says, God, after long ago, He spoke to the fathers in many, and in the prophets in many portions in many ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Now, you may recall in the last chapter, chapter 28, we talked about this Sunday, that Saul inquired of the Lord and got no answer. Then he went to the Lord and said, Hey, what should I do here? Nothing. He asked for the ephod to be brought. Nothing. Now, by now, this ephod that, that Abiathar has with David is probably the correct ephod. And the ephod Saul asked for was probably one that was made after Abiathar left with the, with the original ephod. But he asked for the ephod to be brought, and he asked for, for some help. He inquired of the Lord and got nothing. Now David, in chapter 30, he inquires of the Lord and gets an immediate response. What's the difference? You might say, well, David's a man after God's own heart. Well, Saul could have been. What is the difference in their inquiry such that Saul got nothing and David got an answer? And I'll tell you what it is. Saul was looking for information. Saul just wanted the info. Whether the Lord gave it to him or a witch gave it to him, it didn't matter to Saul. He just wanted the info. Saul was not interested at all in a relationship with the Father. For him, it was information without intimacy. For David, it was intimacy over information. Intimacy first. Before he inquires of the Lord, he has intimacy with the Lord. Before he asks the Lord anything, he has strengthened himself in the Lord. 
Well, I don't know how he strengthened himself in the Lord. I don't know what he did. Did he go on an extended retreat? Hang on, hold on to the stones, guys. Give me about a you know a weekend or two. I'll be back. I'm going to go strengthen myself in the Lord. Did he take a sabbatical? There's not a whole lot of time that goes by here. David just entered into this place of drawing strength from the Lord quickly, effectively, immediately. Psalm 42 verse 5 gives us a key. It says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. David didn't fault the Lord. David wasn't just looking for information. He strengthened himself in the Lord. Intimacy first. Then inquiry. And finally, the Lord provides indemnity. You can jot those three things down if you want to. Intimacy. Then inquiry. And the Lord provides indemnity. That's, that's an insurance word. You've probably heard that before. Indemnity. I had to look it up to think about well, what does this exactly mean. It's an insurance word that means security against hurt or loss or damage. Indemnity is compensation for loss. Watch how David is compensated. Remember the Lord had said, Go pursue them, you'll overtake them in verse 8, and you will surely rescue all. So David went, verse 9, he and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued, he and 400 men. Okay, he had 600, now 400 are pursuing with him. For 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor remained behind. And now he's down in the number of men. Verse 11 says, They found an Egyptian in the field, and they brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate, and they provided him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, and he ate. And then his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. So David said to him, verse 13, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt. I'm a servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Cherethites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb and we burned Ziklag with fire. And then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this land. And when he brought him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Verse 17, David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled, which tells me they were an awful lot of guys. If it was a massive slaughter and 400 of them got away, there must have been thousands there. Verse 18, so David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. David had captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, and I like this, they said, this is David's spoil. This is David's spoil. Falling into the father's arms. Even in the midst of fallout is this process of intimacy and inquiry and indemnity where the Lord restores everything that has been taken away. And hear me on this. This is the thing that we have trouble understanding, especially when we're dealing with the midst of of fallout from sin. Number four in your notes, if you've been following these, 
after the fallout comes full restoration. Full restoration. People actually will fall away from faith in Jesus, will turn their backs on God due to the fallout of their own sin, and tragically it's often just before God is about to fully restore them. Just before God is about to do a great thing. We can be like the men of David. Who in this story, these guys see that everything is lost, that they've, they've lost it all, their, their wives, their, everything they own, it's gone. And their reaction is anger, and they're embittered, and they're ready to throw stones at David and kill him. And, and we can do that. And oftentimes people do. There's loss because of our own sin, because of our own decisions. And we get angry, and we get bitter toward the son of David, Jesus Christ. We can't see around the winding road of Ziklag, but restoration in the Lord is absolutely assured if we will trust Him. He will fully restore. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these are the faith these words are faithful and true. Faithful and true. It's the restoration that God promises. Keep your finger there and flip quickly over to Joel chapter two. Joel chapter two. Once again we look at the people of Israel whose entire history has been one of fallout. In turning their backs on the Father, and turning their backs on Jesus Christ, and entering into that diaspora, and even though they are back, coming back into the land, it has still been a constant struggle. And you wonder, are they ever going to be restored? Are the promises ever going to be fulfilled? Listen to this, Joel chapter 2 verse 18. The Lord will be zealous for His land, and will have pity on His people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil. And you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northern army far from you. I will drive it into a parched and desolate land. And its vanguard into the eastern sea. And its rear guard into the western sea. And its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up. For it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, and the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine will have yielded in full. By the way, interesting, the fig tree is always a picture of Israel. What is the vine a picture of in the Word? Jesus. Who's attached to the vine? The churches. You are. I am. I'll just throw this out to you. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. Are we looking at the blessing of Israel and the church? Both together in a good place at a good time, possibly. Verse 23. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Then, listen, then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. 
My great army which I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, then my people will never be put to shame. The years that the locust has stolen, the fallout from sin, and, and this is just, it's an amazing thing to talk to someone who has come to the Lord late in life. Someone who has found Jesus in their 50s or 60s. Who has a lifetime of fallout behind them. And to see the joy and the wonder as they speak about how, though for 40, 50 years they walked outside of the Lord, how suddenly now that they're walking with the Lord, He is restoring things they never thought would be restored. Because that's what God does. He is restoring in fullness... And we can sometimes miss it. We're so concerned about the fallout, but he's going, I can deal with the fallout. I can cleanse out the fallout. It, makes, it reminds me of the Exxon Valdez oil spill back in Alaska and how people thought forever that would never be cleaned up. And now it is almost 100% contained. No oil left from that, from that spill. And it wasn't even the, the human beings getting in there and cleaning it up. It was nature. And a friend of mine one time said, I don't think man is smart enough to destroy the earth on his own. God is the great restorer. Even that which he's created goes to restoration. You could call this promise in Joel chapter 2, you could call it David's spoil. Because the Lord's saying, hey, it was taken from you. In the same way that all the stuff was taken from David and his men at Ziklag, David got it back in full. The promise of full restoration. And Joel is promising the full restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And so once again we have this picture of a faithful God and a flawed people. Yes, Israel is flawed. Yes, so are you and so am I. But God is faithful to fully restore. As much as there's definite fallout to sin. Did you know that there's fallout to grace as well? Grace has its own fallout. Watch this. There are those who receive grace with joy and those who don't. Which is kind of odd to me. Christian people who are thrilled to be walking in the grace of Jesus and other Christian people who are just there. They're not real happy about it, but by golly, we're going to get to heaven one of these days. And I don't think they have caught grace. I don't think you understand grace until you get to the point where you're kind of giddy about it. Grace is an emotional thing. Now think back. Verse 10, 200 men did not go out with David and the others to fight. They were left behind. They were exhausted. They were worn out. So David and 400 men went on and fought ahead. Verse 21 tells us, When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Bazor, they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, and then David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among them, those who went with David, said, Because they didn't go with us, we'll not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man and his, his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. These guys didn't fight with us. They don't get anything. These guys weren't here on the front lines of battle. They wimped out. We're not going to help them. They shouldn't get any reward. They shouldn't get any of this spoil. Three things happen here at the very end of the chapter. And the first one is grumbling. These guys are grumbling. They're complaining. And this is the heart. Listen to me. This is the heart of the hard-working religious person who actually thinks that they have somehow earned some portion of their victory. 
They actually believed they lived just such a good enough life so as to please God and get them into heaven. They want to take credit for what they've done. That is the true danger gang of legalistic religious living. It's that thinking that I have fought and worked hard for my salvation. I have earned my entrance into the kingdom and everybody else better well have done their work too. And if you haven't done the work that I've been doing, you don't deserve the grace that I've been given. Even though work kind of denies grace, doesn't it? But there are Christians, there are entire segments of Christianity that, that function this way. And Paul says so clearly, Ephesians 2.8, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And the truth is this, the more I recognize grace, here's the fallout of grace, the more I recognize grace in my life, the more graceful I am toward other people. The more I understand how much God has loved me, the more I am able to love others, regardless of what they do to me, So we have the grumblers, and next we have the grace. Watch David. Verse 23, David said, You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. Who has kept us and delivered us into our hand, the band that came against us? And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share, as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. Wait a minute. You're telling me there are those who fight and they get a share and the people who are baggage get the same thing? (laughs) Those who stay back and just kind of watch the church and hang out and don't put any effort in? They're just warming the pew. They get the same? They get the same reward. Interesting, verse 25 says, So it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Grace. It's grace and it's awesome. David is acting just like his father. He's extending grace even to the point of making grace a law. (laughs) Which I think is ironic and kind of cool. It is law in Israel that the men who fight get certain spoils and those who stay behind, they get spoils too. That's grace. And it reminds me of a parable Jesus told. It's in Matthew 20 and you can look it up later. But it's about a, a vineyard owner who goes out early in the morning and he finds some guys standing around and he says, hey, I need four or five guys to come and work my field. So four or five go with them and they go start working the field. Around noon he looks and goes, well, I need some more workers. So he goes and finds some more guys still just kind of lollygagging around. Hey, you want a job today? Sure. So they go and they start to work the field. He does it again. Finally, with minutes to go to the end of the day, he goes out and grabs two or three other guys and says, come on, come on and work my field. And so they go work the field. So you got guys who've been working all day, you got guys who've been working half day, you got guys who've been working quarter day, and you got guys who have just kind of shown up in the last second. And the landowner reaches into his purse and begins to pay up. And he pays everybody the exact same wage. And the guys who worked all day are crying, Foul! That's not fair! What are you doing? How can I mean we worked all we worked hard for this? And this guy just showed up and he's getting the same thing, and Jesus says in the parable, the landowner says, thought it was my money <laughs> to do with as I pleased to give as, as I see fit Jesus' point is very simply this there are going to be people who are saved in the last second people, brothers and sisters who have not lived the Christian life they've been out partying and doing worldly stuff and stuff that we sit, you know, we sit in church and we go I wish we could do that 
I hope you don't do that. I don't sit here and wish that I could do what other people are doing that's messing up their lives. I am so thankful that I have grace and don't have to be involved with those things. But there are going to be people who are going to mess up their lives, squander their lives, it's going to be terrible, and in the very last second, there's going to be one little knucklehead who a second before the rapture gives his life to Jesus for the first time, and boom, he's going to be saved just like me. And the question is, will I say, like David's men, that's not fair. He's getting the same grace. He's flying too? I saw this guy in school. I watched him at work. He does not deserve to be here. And Jesus will look and say, Can't I give grace to whoever I want? It's my grace to give. By the way, Rick, you're lucky to even be here. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. It's funny, there's a, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where, where Paul is talking about gifts and he's talking about people working for things and, and working within grace. But he, he makes this comment, he says, If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Which means there are some people that are going to be caught up in the rapture whose pants are on fire. I mean, they're just barely getting out in time. They're just barely saved. God's grace is just, just quite, just about reason and pulled them out. And they're going to receive the same reward that you and I receive. And the question is, how are you going to feel about it after all the time that you have put in for the Lord in your life? John, after 30 years working the ranch, how are you going to feel about someone who just at the last second gets saved? I hope good. Because, you know, that's what grace does to us. The more we understand grace, the more thrilled we are when anybody gets it. When anybody receives it. I'll tell you one way to test out your attitude toward grace today. Ask yourself how you're going to feel about two types of people. The remnant of Israel, who the Bible tells us will be saved. How do you feel about them? There are Christians, and and this may shock some of you, but I've actually heard Christian people say it's not fair if Israel gets saved. To which I say, they don't understand grace. How you feel about that remnant of Israel that's going to be saved? What about those who are left behind when the rapture happens? It's interesting, verse 9 says, David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came up to the brook Bazor where those left behind remained. There's some guys who just didn't have the energy to continue on. They were left. There are going to be people left behind at the rapture of the church. When the Christians are called up, when they're caught up, there are going to be those left here. And the Bible tells us, Revelation tells us, there's going to be a massive harvest of souls, a massive time of salvation. People getting saved who did not believe in Jesus before the tribulation began. How are you going to feel about them? I hope that we will join with the angels in rejoicing over every single sinner who exactly like you, exactly like me, is found by amazing grace. There are the grumblers and there's the grace. And grace recognized and received can't wait to be given and can't wait to be shared. One last thing here. We had the grumblers and the grace and now we end up with the generosity. Watch David. He blows me away here. Now when David came to Ziklag, verse 26, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Behold, a gift or a blessing for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. For those who are in Bethel, and those who are in Ramath of the Negev, and those who are in Tatir, and those who are in Eroer, and those who are in Sifmah, 
and those who are in Eshtimoah, and those who are in Rakal, and those who are in the cities of the Jeremiahites, and those who were in the cities of the Kenites, and those who were in the, in the Hormah, and those who were in Borashan, and those who were in Atach, and those who were in the places of the Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. There are guys grumbling, but David says, no, we are about grace. And then that grace that David has in his heart, it's a God-given graciousness. It overflows into this massive generosity, and it's a great picture of God. It's a picture of the Lord himself, who given to all the places where David and his men were accustomed to going. So if they went to this town, yeah, let's give them some of the spoil. Let's give them some of the spoil. Hey, we've got more here, let's give it over here. And he just begins to give out all this spoil... And I want to end asking you this question. Is the son of David, Jesus Christ, is he accustomed to go where you live? Is he with you so often that your familiar places or haunts or the places that you spend your time, Jesus knows them well. Is he accustomed to go where you live? Listen, if we grumble at the grace and generosity of the Father toward other people, Jesus will not be accustomed to go where we are. Now, I hope you're getting this, because it took me a while to really think this through. (laughs) But what I'm saying is simply this. We will not be able to be generous to those who may not even know a battle is going on if Jesus isn't accustomed to the places where we go. In other words, the degree to which, and listen to me, the degree to which we as Christians live grumble-free lives will directly affect the degree to which Jesus can use us to bring the gospel to the world. If we are grumblers, the world will not see Jesus in us. Jesus will not be accustomed to going to the places that we go. As in the last verse of this, David was able to give generously to all the places where he himself and his men were accustomed to go. The generosity of God, the grace of God in your life, will it be held back because of grumbling? Or will it be poured out in generosity to places all everywhere that you are because Jesus is in your heart? Philippians 2.14 Paul writes a very powerful and important verse for you and I as believers. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom, Paul says, you appear as lights in the world. Some translations say stars in the universe. How do we appear as lights in this world? Well, by the number of doors we knock on. By the number of Bibles we pass out. By the number of campaigns we're involved in. No. We appear as lights in the world by not grumbling or disputing among ourselves. Jesus says they will know you by your love. They're going to know you're my disciples by your love. They're going to see us as lights, not by us grumbling and complaining and bickering, but by the love we have for each other. Put this way simply, one of the best tools of evangelism that you hold is grace recognized. You recognize grace in your life, and grace begins to overflow in generous ways. The end of this particular story is wonderful. Everything and everyone that had been ripped off from Ziklag, everything is recovered, and then some. In fact, there was so much that David just started giving it away. But I believe the Lord would want us to go and do likewise. We've been given a great grace. Let's give it away. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, I love this picture of David tonight. A picture of a man who finds himself in a mess, the fallout of his own decisions. But rather than whine or complain about it, Lord, to watch David approach you and find his strength in you is so comforting and encouraging to me. And Father, to see him coming to you then and inquiring of you, to follow you and listen to you and do what you want him to do, that is so encouraging to me. And Lord, the way you restore and pour out your grace, and the way then David responds, all of this, Lord, it is just such a picture for us of how we are to live and function with you. And I, I would ask tonight, Lord, that you would teach us how to strengthen ourselves in you, that you would increase our faith and our trust in you, that you would make us, Father, purveyors of the very grace that you have poured out into our lives. Pouring out and offering and sharing grace with those around us. And Father, I pray that your love in us will be seen as lights in the universe. Thank you, Lord, for the Son of David, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.